Well, I, I, I keep forgetting to mention this, but I wanted to thank those of you who uh, listened in a week or so ago when I was able to preach at the Master Seminary Chapel. And the joy of that for me was I was preaching to future preachers about uh, shepherding their flock and particularly through preaching. And I, I knew that this event was coming up. And so there was a, an extra motivation for me uh, to want to um, teach them because it, it's very real life for me. So why don't we spend just a moment together in prayer and focus our hearts and minds on the Word of God. Our Father, it is truly amazing that we come before you opening a book that's big enough to carry in our hand, and in that book are the very truths that would lead us to eternal life. That is a thought that we really can't fully fathom, and yet we enjoy the truth of it. And Lord, our prayer for tonight is very much that we would know Christ better, that we would know your word better, that we would be better worshipers, we would be more obedient followers. I give you praise and honor and thanks for these precious ladies. Lord, they are the heartbeat of our church. They are a delight. They are uh, the joy that makes the church uh, have color and dimension and life. And so I thank you for them, Lord. I thank you for their willingness to, to take an entire weekend to spend just considering you and growing in you and thinking on, on eternal things. And I pray for each one of them that the Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts this weekend such that they would leave not the same, they would leave more obedient, that they would leave more in love with you. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's no exaggeration when I say this is just about the highlight of my year um, to come here. I love this. This is just so much fun. Um, you keep inviting me back, and I know one day that will end and say, okay, we need a woman, um, and I understand that. And every year, one of you manages to make sure that I'm not the only male here. Uh, for a couple of years, it's been Amy Moore, but she's on a break from having babies, apparently. Um, so Nathan is here. Thank you, Nathan. You don't know how much this means to me, to not be alone. Well, our, our theme for this retreat is blossoming as God's child. And this is a rare opportunity to use a, a beautiful metaphor. If I use this metaphor at a men's retreat, they'd probably throw rocks at me. But we're going to use some of the parables of the Lord Jesus as our guide uh, for this weekend. And here's kind of my basic principle for these days that we're together here. That the principle is that your walk needs and thrives on nourishment. That we need to be nourished in the Lord. And we're using the metaphor of a plant or a flower or fruit or anything that grows to help us think through this. And we understand this instinctively. A plant needs certain elements, sunshine, water, food, uh, plant food, occasional pruning, all of the things that contribute to the health of something that grows in the ground. But imagine if you got mad at that plant for some reason and you started criticizing it because some of the leaves turned brown and, and you became angry. And because you were angry, you decided to stop watering it. And the more the leaves started turning brown, the more frustrated you became. So you took it out of the sunshine and it just got worse and worse. And of course, we understand that that's completely illogical. Well, let's take it into the realm of human relationships. For example, a marriage. Like a plant, a marriage needs nourishing elements. It needs time together. It needs 
cherishing one another, common goals, physical touch, tenderness, forgiveness, all of these things, that if you cut back on those things, then of course the marriage relationship begins to go dry. And so that's, that's instinctive to us. We understand that. We, we get that. That makes sense. But for some reason, that doesn't always translate to our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is given to us by the sacrifice of Christ for our sins and begun by the Holy Spirit. It requires nourishment. It requires care. It's not automatic. If you're thirsty, you get water. If you're hungry, you get food. If you're tired, you get sleep. But for some reason, when we feel spiritually dry, it's like we're, we're baffled. Well, what do I do about this? And, and we sometimes even search in all the wrong places. We might look for instant fixes. Well, I want to hear a sermon that makes me feel good and will carry me for a week. Joel Osteen has made millions on that very premise, that I can give you something that's just enough. Or we might say, I want to find a Bible verse that will instantly improve my emotional state of mind. And now we start using the Bible as a, as a magic book instead of the Word of God. Or I want to pray a three-minute prayer that will adjust my outlook on life completely before I go to work or whatever. This is like taking a little cup of miracle Grow and dumping it on a dying plant and then getting mad at it because it doesn't instantly do better. And so for this retreat, I want to talk to you about those nourishing elements, those long-term elements of making your walk with the Lord fresh and renewed and joyful. So we'll use the theme of blossoming. We can all relate to that. And for our time tonight, I want to focus on the very first element of blossoming as a child of God. It's a very old and a very overused pun, but it serves our purposes tonight. I want to talk about blossoming with generous sunshine, as in son of God shine. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We'll look at verses 44 through 46. Now, since we're looking at the parables and we have the whole weekend together to do this, some of the teaching stories here that Jesus used, I think it might be helpful to orient us just a little bit to parables and and maybe how to understand them. The parables of Jesus basically had two purposes. Christ himself explained this in in Mark chapter 4. The first purpose is to reveal spiritual truth to his followers. And the second purpose is to conceal spiritual truth from his enemies. And they served both those purposes, to reveal and to conceal. And this was extremely effective because for those who were his enemies, his teaching just frustrated them all the more, and that was his purpose. And for those who were his followers, it sparked interest, it sparked joy, and we we love the parables of Jesus. He used everyday elements that his listeners were well acquainted with, fishing and farming and shepherding, cooking, sewing, cleaning, weddings, banquets, all of these things that, that they knew As a matter of fact, one of the ways we have a a clear picture of life in the first century were the parables of Jesus. That told us what was important to people. His parables often included suspenseful plots. It included uh, heightened exaggeration. There was conflict. They had multiple characters. Sometimes there was even some implied humor. They have surprises and twists that no one would have thought when Jesus said that the Samaritan was the one who stopped and helped the, the person on the road who was hurt, everyone was shocked by that. And so there were all kinds of surprises here. 
There are clear and important principles for properly interpreting parables. I'm not going to give you a full lecture on how to properly interpret a parable, but let me tell you what I'm doing so that in your study in the future, you can understand how to walk through parables. So let me just give you a a few little things that I think about when I'm studying parables. Uh, The first principle is that to understand the spiritual truth, you have to understand the natural meaning of the story. You have to understand what the story meant. It's teaching by analogy. So like we're going to do tonight, if you don't understand what buried treasure means to an Israelite, then the story isn't going to make sense. So we have to understand the natural meaning of the story. Second principle we try to go by is you have to understand the situation or the problem that's in existence when Jesus tells the parable. There's an audience, there's somebody he's speaking to, there's a situation, there's a a, a particular instance that he's trying to address. And that goes a long way toward helping us with the parable. Third thing to understand about a parable, and this is a mistake a lot of well-meaning believers who are studying the Bible make, is that a parable is not an allegory. A parable is not an allegory. In an allegory, you analyze all the component parts and try to find meanings for each one. Uh, For example, if you've read or seen the movie, The Lord of the Rings, that's an allegory. There's all kinds of meanings there. There's Christ-like figures. There's kingdom themes. You see sacrificial death. You even see resurrection themes. And you you pull all these out. And that's what makes it interesting. But the parable is not an allegory. It's aiming at one basic truth. One thing to teach us. And often Jesus even tells us what that truth is. Now, on some occasions, there are a few elements that can be explained. But it still has one main point. For example, the parable of the soils, the farmer is the preacher of the gospel, the soil is the heart, the seed is the gospel, the, uh, the seed is the gospel which birds snatch away, um, uh, Satan is in there, there's the riches of the world, there's, there's these symbols, but there's still one main point, and that is that many people will reject the gospel and only a few will receive it. But the only reason we can understand those main points, or, or all the subpoints is because Jesus himself explained it. And so we don't have to go guessing. So you you can't just say, well, I think that all these elements in this parable mean A, B, and C. We can't do that. Guesswork is not Bible study. But I think the most important thing for you to know about the parable is that almost exclusively they are all kingdom-centered. They're all about the kingdom of God. They teach you something about the kingdom, about the nature of the kingdom, about how they get into the kingdom, about what the kingdom is like. Now, we've laid all that groundwork. Um, Yes, the the parables are very kingdom-centered. Generally speaking, they often point out the attitude that we ought to have toward the kingdom. That's very important. It shows who will enter the kingdom, shows who, who won't enter the kingdom. But one of the mistakes that we can make is that because the parables are so kingdom oriented, is to think that somehow there's not an application for me as a believer now, that they have no value for my daily walk. But it is the same attitudes that brought you to Christ that should also dictate your thinking and your conduct after coming to Christ. In other words, what brought you to the kingdom ought to be what motivates you when you're in the kingdom, a part of the kingdom. So my goal for the next five sessions is to, we will stay true to the one main point of the parable. We, we have to do that. Ethically, we have to stay true to what the text says. But practically speaking, we want to apply each parable to a particular part of nourishing our walks with the Lord. And, and, and I think it will make sense to you as we go. Now, in this scene in Matthew 13, we're coming to a time in the ministry of Christ 
where he has been officially rejected by the leadership of Israel. They've accused him of being filled with Satan. They've blasphemed the Holy Spirit in doing this. And Jesus has condemned them to future judgment in Matthew chapter 12. And now his teaching becomes heavy with parables. Why is that? Because he's revealing truth only to his followers and he's concealing it from his enemies. His teaching now also becomes less and less public. He begins spending more and more time just with his disciples. He's preparing them. He's teaching them. He's training them. He's lifting them up because they're going to be responsible to take the gospel to the whole world. And so this is one of those times, Matthew 13, look with me at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And now Jesus explains a parable that he just told publicly, but then he moves on to some kingdom parables, the, the first two of which have very similar stories with a similar point or the same point actually. And so our text for tonight, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Well, let's organize our thoughts here very, very simply. I want to show you the particulars and the point. Okay, because parables are meant to be easy for us to understand. First of all, the particulars. What what are some of the elements we should understand here? Now, Jesus starts both of these stories and they're meant to go together. This is on purpose. He starts by saying the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, why does he say the kingdom of heaven? Well, this is a euphemism. This is a nickname, as it were, for God to avoid saying the name of God. Jesus isn't avoiding saying the name of God. It's just that this is such a common term with his listeners that they immediately knew what he was talking about. When he said kingdom of heaven, he knew they knew that he meant God's kingdom and Messiah's future kingdom. That's what they would hear. Well, let's look at the particulars of the first parable. It, it sounds like a movie plot. There's buried treasure. A man finds it, but he doesn't take it away. He covers it up and he goes and he buys the field. Now, I said earlier that Jesus used parables because they contain pictures that people were very familiar with in everyday life. I remember reading this as a, as a child about buried treasure. And all I could picture was long John Silver with his eye patch and his wooden leg. And, and for some reason, I pictured him in a field in Israel. I don't know how long John, Israel, long John Silver got to a field in Israel. But so you have this one-legged pirate going arg through a field in Israel. And that never made sense to me. But that's all I knew. <clears throat> How does buried treasure figure into the everyday life of a Jew in Israel's day, in Jesus' day? Well, it wasn't uncommon for people to bury their most valuable possessions. There were circumstances, in fact, where that treasure could remain buried. A man would very often bury most of his valuables in one of his fields in an obscure location before he went on a long journey. Remember, you couldn't just text ahead and say, I'll be home in exactly 2.3 hours. He might be gone a day. He might be gone for three months. Or worse, he might not survive the trip. And all of a sudden, his family's looking around. Hey, where's all that silver and gold daddy used to have? And it's gone. And nobody knows where it is. Or it could be that landowners bury gold and silver in a time of war 
When they hear that the Babylonians are coming, what do you think all the wealthy landowners did? They went and buried their, their silver and their gold because they didn't know what was going to happen. Some of them might survive, some might not. And so the idea of buried treasure in Jesus' day was, was a reality. I mean, it, was, it was probably a better chance of finding buried treasure in Israel than there was of winning the lottery today. It was a reality. It was real. And so this would certainly capture the imagination of, of Jesus' listeners. It would hearken back to centuries earlier when Israel endured invasion after invasion. And, and maybe this is a buried treasure going all the way back to Babylon 600 years earlier. And so there's myths and legends and stories about buried treasure that circulated all through Israel. This was, this was the, the stuff of, of fairy tales and the stuff of campfire stories. Now, what happened if you found a buried treasure? Well, the law of the land was basically finders keepers. But if you found a buried stash on somebody else's land, they could make a claim to it. So what's the best way to keep that treasure? It's to own the land. So this guy finds his treasure and he buries it again. Now, why is that? He goes and he buys the field after burying the treasure again. So there's basically only one scenario that could fit what this guy is doing. And Jesus, uh, his listeners would be familiar with this. The most likely scenario is that this man was acting as a land agent and he had a client and this was, this was common in that day. He had a client, a wealthy client who was interested in this particular piece of land and this particular piece of land was for sale. And so the agent would have done what a real estate agent does today, try to connect a buyer and a seller and put them together for a fee. The agent would have made a recommendation to the wealthy client about this land he was interest, interested in. And so the agent would go and inspect the land to make sure that it's, it's worthy of recommending to a wealthy buyer. And so he's inspecting the land. This is all farmland. What do you not want on farmland? You don't want rocks. And so he's going to be out there with a spade or a shovel of some kind and sticking his, his spade and shovel in the ground, make sure there's not a bunch of rocks in there, that this guy's not trying to unload a horrible piece of land that has bedrock three inches underneath it. So he's sticking his spade in the ground and dunk. Is that a rock? Dunk. And he starts digging and comes up with some sort of buried treasure. And so he opens this thing and it's a fortune. And so his little wheels are turning. He reburies it. And if this is the scenario that's happening, what do you think he goes and tells his client? Oh, that land is terrible. You don't want to buy that land. It's, it's rocky. It's, it's, it's going downhill. It's right next to the dairy. It smells so bad. It's just horrible. Well, let's find another. I found this other piece on the other side of town. It's so good. It's, it's a real deal. Let's do that one. And then the little sneak, he's not a wealthy man. He goes and sells everything that he has and he buys the field himself. Now, don't be distracted by the fact that the man is a little bit unscrupulous. He's buying a field where he knows treasure is buried. Jesus sometimes used shady characters to display a singular virtue. So don't be distracted by that. So that's the first story. But then he tells a similar one. Let's look at the particulars of the second parable. Very similar. This time the main character is a merchant. He's a buyer and a seller. Specifically, he deals in pearls. Now, pearls weren't seen as particularly valuable to the Jews at first. In the Old Testament, there's only two references to pearls, one in the book of Esther and one in Job. 
But after the exile and after the Jews had been exposed to, um, to Greek culture and Hellenism and so forth, pearls now became associated with gold and wealth and, and precious stones. In fact, by about 100 BC, just a century before Christ, archaeologists believed that the Mediterranean world essentially became obsessed with pearls, that, that pearls were everything. In 55 BC, Julius Caesar invaded Britain. Does anybody know why he invaded Britain? It's because Britain had more freshwater pearls than any place on earth, and he wanted them. And so there was an obsession with pearls. And so when Jesus brings up a story about pearls, everybody's listening. And so this merchant is out looking for pearls, and he comes across a pearl of great value. And like the first man, he sold all that he had to, to buy the pearl. This merchant was likely wealthy, so it must have been quite some pearl for him to sell everything he had to, to buy it. Obviously, the owner of the pearl didn't know what he had in terms of value, so imagine the, the anxiety and the angst of the merchant trying to make this deal while not looking like he's about to faint you know, while, while the money's being exchanged. And you would say, well, that might be a little bit um, far-fetched. Actually, something like that happened in this century. In the early 2000s, a Filipino fisherman found a giant clam, and inside the clam was an oblong pearl, 26 inches long, 12 inches wide, weighing 75 pounds. Now, this is very rare because most pearls are found not in clams, but in what? In oysters. And so he took it home, and he put it under his bed as a good luck charm. Well, his little hut burned down one day, and that led to him having this pearl valued at $100 million. It was just a good luck charm sitting under his, his bed. So the hero of our story here, the, the merchant, he found the pearl that he knew was the greatest. He didn't wait. He didn't hesitate. His quest was over. His career was done. He would be an extremely wealthy man now. So th those are the particulars. It's so important to understand the story so that we can begin to see what Jesus would do with it. So what's the point of the story? What do these stories have to do with explaining the kingdom of heaven about coming to salvation in Christ? Well, let's eliminate a couple of things that would, we would say is not the point. First of all, the point of these stories is not that in order to attain to salvation in Christ, you must sell everything you have. You must become some sort of Protestant version of a nun. And that's not what this is talking about. Uh, it's not that you have to make sacrifices to gain God's approval. Salvation is by faith alone, not by works. Now, of course, there is the case in which God called a rich young man to give up all of his worldly possessions to follow Christ. But that wasn't a work he had to do. That was giving up the idol of his money. That was a different situation. So the point is not that you gain God's favor by doing great and mighty deeds or by sacrificing much. That's not the point. But there is a lesson in these parables. And here is the point. A person should count all things as loss for the sake of following Christ. A person should count all things as lost for the sake of following Christ because the payoff more than makes up for what you sacrificed. The payoff more than makes up for, for the sacrifice. Every follower of Christ must abandon anything and everything which stands in the way of wholehearted allegiance to Christ, to kingdom priorities. You abandon anything and everything which would continue to be a God. Because salvation and the coming kingdom, these are so valuable that if following Christ means giving up many things, then it's worth it. Now, the man seeking the treasure and the man seeking the pearl are pictures of a genuine believer in Christ, a genuine believer in the Lord. 
someone who has been told the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel, and will give up anything to be part of the kingdom. Because as they would say it, no cost is too great when it's a matter of gaining entrance to the kingdom. Now, I wanted you to notice there's a slight difference between these two men. In the parable of the treasure, the man stumbled across the treasure, but in the parable of the pearl, the man was searching for the pearl. And what is this? Jesus is he's covering the gamut. He's reaching out to every person in his audience. He's reaching out to the one that just by happens by God's sovereignty to strike the buried treasure of the gospel. I have baptized people who said, I just happened to be driving by Young Street on Sunday morning and thought I should stop in for church. And they stumbled across the treasure. And then you have the desperate seeker, someone who's seeking spiritual truth. And as the Holy Spirit works in their heart, they're graciously by God's providence brought to the knowledge of the gospel through the preached word or through a co-worker or a family member. That's the, the seeker. So from a human standpoint, both of these men are presented as extremely fortunate. They found a treasure. The first man is said to have great joy at his discovery. He would do anything. He would pay any price to have that treasure. That is, by the way, the paradox of salvation in Christ. It is free, but it is not without cost. You can't pay anything to be part of the kingdom, but it may cost you everything to be part of the kingdom. Jesus said this in so many ways. He said in Luke 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He said in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He said in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And he just he says this over and over again. Salvation is free, but it costs you everything. So the main lesson of these two parables is that coming to faith in Christ, becoming a kingdom citizen by virtue of repentance, asking for the mercy of God, this is something to be longed for, to be cherished, to be sought after, to be a child of God. It means that you lay aside all the idols of self-righteousness. You yearn to be part of the kingdom. You, you, you beg for it. That's the primary thrust of these parables. It, it's kingdom desire, the, the worth, the value of redemption. Now, by virtue of the fact that this is about the kingdom, the kingdom is headed by a king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeking longingly after the kingdom must necessarily be accompanied by seeking longingly after the king. It must be the king because Christ is the center of everything. There is no gospel without Christ. There is no kingdom without Christ. There is no salvation plan without Christ. There is no redemption without Christ. Everything is Christ. And so we seek after the king. There's a quality in these two men in these parables that they are experiencing. It's urgency. It's desperation. Can you imagine the first guy finding this field for sale, discovering the treasure? Can you imagine what he must be going through to try to keep this under wraps while he's trying to buy the land, sell everything you own without anybody knowing it. That's tough. And keep this client away. I mean, in his shoes, I would be a nervous wreck. But it was that important to him. And the lesson here is that seeking Christ and salvation is everything. It's everything. But I have a question. 
And this is a good question for us in evangelical America. Having been so eager to seek Christ in salvation, shouldn't we just be as eager to continue seeking Christ as saved people? Where is the urgency? Where is the the eagerness and, and the delight? The biblical idea of seeking God can and does include the idea of initial salvation. But so many times the Bible tells us to seek God, meaning to seek the knowledge of God, seek an audience with God, seek communion with God, seek the word of God, seek the understanding of God, seek the special presence of God. Let me put it this way. This parable demonstrates the idea of putting aside everything for Christ, everything. But having come to faith in Christ, do we now abandon that attitude and become ho-hum and routine? That, by the way, is why Sylvia is recommending uneclipsing the sun, to help you not let that happen. In fact, we're told in Scripture to seek him all the more, to be spiritually nourished with sunshine, so to speak. So to finish our time this evening, what I want to do is I want to give you an explanation of how to seek after Christ, and then I want to give you an example of how to seek after Christ. So we're going to make this as practical as we can. Explanation and example. First explanation. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. The Apostle Paul is exhorting the church at Colossae to have a proper Christology, proper understanding of Christ. Chapter 2 dealt with what is often called the Colossian heresy, which included a denigrated and a lowered view of Christ, which he's now correcting in this letter. In chapter 3, he really gets to a a highlight here when he speaks of Christ. Chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we're to seek the things that are above. And the primary reason here is that that's where Christ is. It's where he is. That's what we should want to think about. Now, this text has two imperatives, two commands, and we're going to take these apart. They're similar, and they're, they're even parallel, but there's a slight difference that I think will, will be helpful to you. The two commands give us this simple how-to guide in seeking Christ. The two commands are, seek the things above, verse 1, and set your minds on things above, verse 2. They sound very similar, but there is a nuance. Seek the things above, this has to do with your heart. It has to do with desire. It has to do with cultivating a desire for something. It speaks of investigating, making inquiries, looking into something, finding detail. And in these four verses, Paul gives three reasons to cultivate this desire for Christ, for the things above. And it's very simple. We can divide them into past, present, and future relationship things with Christ. In the past, verse 3, you died. In other words, if your death with Christ has severed the chains that bound you to the world. Now your old sin nature and the powers of evil are gone. Now your resurrection will reestablish some new bonds, some new uh, uh, relationship. The alliance you had with darkness is broken in Christ's death, and now an alliance with light is established. That's what happened in the past. Verse 1, in the past, you've been raised with Christ. 
This is a passive verb. This means that you've been raised, you being raised is something God did. You had nothing to do with that. And this one verse alone proves the reality of the security of your salvation. If you're, if you're doubting your salvation, if you wonder, am I really saved? And as you examine your heart, you, you believe you are. This ought to give you great comfort. You have been raised with Christ. And it speaks in such absolute terms. You've been given new life in Christ. This is your position. It's, it's very, very certain. And that's why it's presented as a past reality. And then we have what happened in the present. Verse 1, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's interceding on our behalf to the Father. And because of this, we're to look to Him there. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And still in the present, verse 3, Your life is hidden with Christ. Isn't that a great picture to be hidden, to be protected. The Bible uses other terms like in the shadow of his wings. It's a beautiful picture of protection. Jesus made a promise. He said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. It's the picture of you in the hand of Christ all the way to heaven when he finally opens it and you're safe. But then he gives you reasons from the future. In verse 4, when Christ appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And it's this appearance with Christ, this, this first meeting of face-to-face meeting with Christ that's the catalyst, it's the changing factor that makes you like him. It completes the process of your sanctification and your salvation. It's the moment that you see Christ for the first time that you will be like him. I wonder what that's going to be like. I wonder what that's going to be like. 1 John 3, 2 says that when we see him, when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Because when you are with Christ in all of his glory, you're either judged or you become like him. You know what happened when Jesus touched dirty things on earth? They became clean. He didn't avoid dead bodies. He touched them because they were raised. So that's what will happen with us. So understanding your past, your present, and your future your relationship with Christ, that defines how we seek the things above. We're understanding, we're trying to know. But then we get to this second command in Colossians 3, set your minds on things above. Now, Paul sort of sounds like a typical male here. He's being repetitive and he's redundant and so forth. But this goes beyond thinking. This is not just your heart. It goes beyond desires. This is not just your, your, your mind. This word to set your mind on things above In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word is often translated to mean to be wise, to discern. And in fact, the noun version of it can be translated as a shepherd, somebody who does things that are wise. Mark 8.33, Peter told Jesus that he should stop talking about all this dying and being raised from the dead stuff. Jesus used the same word. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not, same word, setting your mind on the things of God. In other words, your words and your actions do not match truth. So setting your mind is to act in wisdom in accordance with what you know. To be so completely convinced that you now live your life in response to this knowledge. So to seek and to set may seem similar, but this is the point of this this transition here that Paul gives us. 
Seeking has to do with what you know, and setting has to do with what are you going to do about it. It's always action following knowledge. So setting your minds is not just about pondering truth, but on your response to the truth. So how do you seek Christ? Seek the things that are above. That's knowledge of Christ. Set your minds on the things that are above. Your right and daily response to this knowledge. Now, that's just a brief explanation. That's the theory. What I want to do is an example with you. And I think you'll enjoy this. I enjoyed preparing for this. I thought it would be interesting to look to the Old Testament to consider the sunshine of Christ. And we'll just do this briefly. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. And this is just an exercise in seeking the Lord in Scripture. In fact, in the book of Daniel, the pre-birth, pre-incarnate, Lord Jesus Christ is a major character in this book. Daniel was written by the prophet Daniel in the time of Israel's exile in Babylon. But the point of this prophetic book is that that God has a plan for Israel, that he's still working out. He's continuing to be faithful to this plan. God has a plan for the nations that he's continuing to work out. Why is this? Because in God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and, and other chapters, God made a promise for Israel. God made a promise to the nations. And so he's working out this plan, but the means by which he's going to work out this plan is always the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by just quickly perusing the book of Daniel, we can actually put together a profile of our Savior and search him out and seek him out. So let's put together a profile. First part of the profile, Jesus Christ delivers his faithful children. Jesus Christ delivers his faithful children. Israel is in exile, and now they're forced to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's idols. Daniel has three friends who refuse, and they're thrown into a fiery furnace. Look with me at Daniel 3, beginning in verse 22. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. But wait, there's more. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. What is that? That is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver his people. Look with me at Daniel chapter 6. Fast forward many decades later. Daniel is now an old man. He's been serving faithfully Darius, the king of the Babylonian province of the new Persian empire, who was, by the way, Daniel's friend. Darius and Daniel are friends, but he's about to be executed for praying to Yahweh, the one true God, because of a tricky new law. And so he's thrown into the lion's den. Daniel 6, beginning in verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lion's? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him 
And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. What is this? Well, this is almost certainly another pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to save his own. And this role of Jesus delivering his faithful children is made clear by Christ himself. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. They will not be snatched out of my hand. We could continue our profile. We could say this. Secondly, Jesus Christ will ultimately reign over all kingdoms. Jesus Christ will ultimately reign over all kingdoms. Go back with me to Daniel chapter 2, really right near the end of Daniel chapter 2. Jesus Christ will ultimately reign over all human kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream given to him by God, a dream of a great statue which the prophet Daniel was not only to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was, but what it meant. And it was an explanation of the coming kingdoms of the world, but that each of these kingdoms would fall. The prophecy predicted the current Babylonian Empire, replaced then by the Medo-Persian Empire, replaced by the Greek Empire, replaced by the Roman Empire. But then Daniel 2, right near the end of the chapter, verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Those are the kingdoms. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. What is this? This is the stone the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will break apart all kingdoms of the world. Revelation 19.12 pictures the Lord Jesus Christ about to return to earth. And you remember, um, we sing a hymn called Crown Him with Many What? Crowns. It's the symbol of Him wearing the crown of every nation before He's conquered them. That's confidence. This is exactly what was promised all the way back in Daniel 2. We could add another thing to the profile of Christ. Third, Jesus Christ will be given these kingdoms of the earth by his Father. He'll be given these kingdoms of the earth by his Father. Turn with me to Daniel 7. He'll be given these kingdoms of the earth by his Father. In Daniel 7, the prophet is receiving dreams and visions from God as he lay in his bed. Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. So this is a vision of the heavenly throne room. And what does Daniel see? Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the presentation of the kingdoms of the world by God the Father to his Son. Where else do we read about this? Psalm 2 You shall break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is all still just in the book of Daniel. 
We could add more to the profile of Christ. Jesus Christ will raise all his people from the dead and exalt them. Jesus Christ will raise all his people from the dead and exalt them. Turn to Daniel chapter 12, right at the very end of the book. Daniel is given another prophetic vision, and now in Daniel 12, he's given knowledge of the coming great tribulation on the earth, a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation. And Daniel is told of the coming resurrection of all people, some to judgment, some to eternal life. Daniel 12, beginning in verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And who specifically is going to bring about this resurrection? Jesus said in John 6:40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who's doing the resurrecting? It is Christ. We could do one more profile. Jesus Christ will reign over his people for all eternity. Jesus Christ will reign over his people for all eternity. One of my favorite verses in all of Daniel. Turn with me to Daniel 7, right at the end of the chapter. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. What's the end result of those first four? That Christ will reign over a purified, sinless earth with nations and with saints who rule alongside him. Those who are are reigning with him. Daniel 7, verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. That is one book out of 66 and we're not even in the New Testament. And from Daniel, we put together a profile of Christ. We've been seeking him. We've been gaining knowledge about him. But how do we set our minds on him? Well, simply, now knowing these facts, Jesus Christ delivers his faithful children. He will reign over all human kingdoms. He will be given the kingdoms of the earth by his father. He will raise all the people, his people from the dead and exalt them. And he will reign over all of his people for all eternity. So the question is, so what? How do I live in light of this knowledge? Can I give you the short answer? I don't think you're going to be able to help it. Honestly, because as you seek after Christ at that level, seeking to know him and see him in the pages of scripture and see what 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 God, his father says about him, you become changed, you become conformed, you become more and more like him. Yes. And you know this about me. I am I am adamant that preaching should be applicational, that I should tell you this is the truth and here's what to do with it. But I also believe with all of my heart that as you seek the Lord, as you seek to know him and know him and know him, you'll be sanctified in ways that you don't even realize until you look back. You say, you know, over the last couple of years, I, I haven't been as concerned. I haven't been as worried. I've had more faith. I've been more faithful. And you might not even put two and two together. Oh, I've been seeking Christ. And so I'm becoming more like him. Let me give you proof. Titus 1, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Paul, 
a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect, listen to this, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That's an important phrase. Knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Accords with is a little tiny Greek preposition, but it, it, it's an important one because this grammatical construction in this particular phrase specifically means, accords with means moving downhill. Moving downstream. In other words, Paul is saying that the knowledge of the truth flows downstream toward godliness. It just happens. Simple way to put this is if you want to be nourished by the sunshine of Christ, which results in a life that imitates Christ, then learn of him and know him. Have books on your shelf about Christ. Read your Bible with the lens of finding Christ. Be a treasure hunter who's anxious to purchase the field in which the treasures of the knowledge of the kingdom are are buried. Read one of the Gospels. Make a list of every observation you have about Christ. I'll bet you fill pages and pages and pages. And then read it again, and I'll bet you fill more pages that you didn't see before. Read Colossians. It is the most Christ-centered epistle in the New Testament. Read Revelation. It shows... Christ in all of his glory in a way that the Gospels don't. Listen to Christ-centered sermons. Listen to some of your favorite preachers and look on, their, look on their apps or their podcasts or whatever for sermons on Christ. And just know him and know him and know him. And now you're being spiritually nourished to blossom in spiritual vitality and trust and health because the Son of God is shining in full strength. And in fact... We're within our biblical bounds to see Christ as heavenly sunshine. Can I tell you where I got the idea for this whole series? Revelation 1.13, And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like what? The sun shining in full strength. And I hope and I pray that you will seek after Christ more and more. And don't say, well, I've already done that. He is the eternal God. Psalm 16 says that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, meaning when you've learned one billion things about Christ, you haven't made a dent. You've not made a dent. Let me pray for you. Our Father, show us Christ. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. I pray for these precious ladies that even now that they are reminded to seek their Lord and Savior, to know Him, to see Him in the pages of Scripture, to pray to Him as the apostles did in the early chapters of Acts, to take Him at His promise that until now you have not asked for anything in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be full, to commune with Him, to love Him, to cherish Him, to remember Him particularly when we receive the Lord's table as a church body at times. Lord, I pray for these precious ladies. I pray that they would be so filled with Christ that they would become more and more like Him.
I praise you and thank you for them, Lord. And I pray that when they go home, they would be more like Christ because they see him more. We pray these things for his sake and in his name. Amen.